The Premier League season may be over, but we still have the Champions League and the Europa League to come. And Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello, welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. Um, I'm very obviously not Joe Devine, but I am Seb Safferblor, filling in for Joe. He's having a few days off, um, and so in the meantime, we're going to do something different. Um, our guest today is, is Les Cleveley, former professional goalkeeper, goalkeeping coach and manager. And he's going to talk about some of the subtleties and nuances behind the position, some of the bits which perhaps don't get to look in on Match of the Day or, or on in the Sky Sports studio. Um, and there's a plot twist too, because Les, once upon a time, was my goalkeeping coach a very long time ago now, uh, about £20 and a full hairline ago, unfortunately. Um, but we'll revisit some of the stories from those days as well. Before we do, though, let's talk about The Athletic. There's some interesting things going on there at the moment. To celebrate the anniversary of their launch in the UK, uh, each of their writers unlocking one of their favourite articles from the past 12 months for you to read for free. In addition to which, um, for access to the full range of The Athletic's offering, you can get a free 30-day trial by going to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Do take that offer up too. Um, over the weekend, I was, I was reading um, a feature by Charlie Eccleshare and, and Jack Pitbrook on Tottenham chairman Daniel Levy. It's full of interesting detail on one of the most private men in the Premier League. And it's really great work from those two. Um, do give it a try because it's rare to actually find anything other than the usual generalities about Levy, you know, about his negotiating or his uh, transfer acumen. Uh, great piece of work. So um, do give that a read. Now, though, let's get to Les. Les, thank you so much for coming on. Um, as I explained to the listeners, it's been a really, really long time since we last saw each other. How have you been? Yeah, I'm good. Um, it has been a long time. It's been too long. Um, a lot's happened in the, in the time since I've seen you last. But um, yeah, it's um, health-wise, trying to look after myself. And as you do, as you get older, it gets tougher and tougher. But yeah, I'm good. Yeah, as you get older. like I think um, I was trying to work it out earlier. I think I am now the age that you were when we first met which is kind of depressing for both of us in a way, really. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of spooky, really. So it's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that you, you kind of comes on top of you very quickly. You know, I remember sitting in a changing room when I was actually playing and um, I was about 26 at the time and, and was uh, at Carshorton and I kind of, I kind of looked around the dressing room and I took a time out. I used to sit in the same place every game that I played there. And I remember looking around the change room and it's still as vivid um, to me today as it was then. And I just remember thinking, oh, I've got another 10 years of this. Yeah. And I remember coming to the end of my playing career thinking, where the hell did that 10 years go? But um, but it goes and, and lots, lots happen. People get on with their lives. And uh, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, you, you come across a new wave of experiences. You're always meeting people in football, um, different people. And it's... Uh, you know, it's an interesting environment. So let's start with your playing days. Where where did you begin? Where did your professional career begin? Oh God, um, 
when I was 12 years of age, um, I got scouted from a local um, club called Selsden Juniors, who have a quite a big um, a big setup now in in the Croydon area. I moved from inner London out to to, to Croydon, and um, within a couple of weeks, I started playing for a, for a Sunday club called Selsden Juniors, and they had links through um, a guy called Keith uh, Derek Millen, who was I don't know if you remember the centre back that used to play for Brentford called Keith Millen went on to manage. I do. Uh, I do. MK, MK Dons and Keith is a good lad we kind of grew up together and Keith uh, Keith's dad was scouting at the time and he said look you know I've got some connections with the selection centre with Southampton would you like to come over and train so I went over there and trained and from the age of 13 till we got our apprenticeships as it was back then um, I did my apprenticeship and then did um, a couple of years apprenticeship at Southampton in the early 80s did um, my first year as a pro there um, and then moved on from there. Did you make your debut at Southampton? Um, did you make your professional debut? Yeah, there? I did, albeit a little bit sad because six months into my tenure there, um, we'd signed Peter Shilton. And whilst you think that's the greatest thing ever, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it turns out to be an absolute disaster because you're never going to get a sniff of football. And plus the fact that we had three other really, really good goalkeepers, Yugoslav International, uh, Catalinic. We had a lad called Peter Wells who went on to play for Millwall, etc. Um, so we had good keepers there. And um, so, you know, it was kind of when I was offered um, another year's contract there, um, I basically said no. The offer wasn't fantastic, um, and in uh, in hindsight, it, it probably wasn't the best thing for me. But I got in touch with a friend who'd asked me to get in touch with him if things didn't go the way we wanted, and I ended up going up to Notts County um, through um, Justin Fashion, who oddly enough, because I was his apprentice at, at Southampton when he came on loan. Um, and um, really good lad. One of few people in football that I can actually and honestly say, you know, um, delivered on offering help and actually delivered um, to help out. Um, so I went up there when Howard Wilkinson was there. And the trouble is, within a short space of time, um, Howard moved on um, and it kind of scuppered me a little bit. So I came back down. Fortunately, I came back down to Crystal Palace and it was the first um, the first time I'd signed for Crystal Palace. Um, so I signed professional contract there. Um, but again, didn't get very much of a look in, to be honest with you. You know, half a dozen games and 70-odd and games in the reserves there. And it was, it was a little bit of a frustrating time. Fantastic times as far as the personnel. Steve Copper was fantastic. Um, but, you know, I just felt fortunate that um, I'd had that opportunity. Um, I went out and played in Sweden for a short short space of time. Came back and had another spell at Crystal Palace. And then I, I um, had one or two injuries. I had uh, six quite bad ankle breaks, which was kind of ridiculous, really, um, at the time. And they should have really should have really finished me. Um, but I carried on, had a little bit of surgery on them and, and, and tried and tried. But then ended up in in non-league football, um, and you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I had some good times at some very good clubs and played over a thousand games in non-league football for some very good clubs and had some great times. So that's kind of pretty much um, you know where my career went. And during the latter part, when I broke my back, I'd um, I had a short spell at uh, Welling and I broke my back in two places and and. Whilst I was having the surgery, I had no intention of really getting involved in coaching. 
Um, but um, strangely enough, part of my rehab, one of the coaches, you know, used to turn around at Enfield and say, would I take the warm up? Would I take the cool down? So what I ended up doing was was getting involved in coaching that way. And once you started to see that you could have an influence over people doing that, um, I never looked back, really. I took a, a player manager's job at Dulwich Hamlet, and that was the start of me doing my coaching badges. And uh, whilst I was over there, there was a couple of people involved with Millwall Football Club, um, a guy called Dave Mehmet, um, who used to run the academy. He said, come and do the goalkeepers, the younger goalkeepers for me. Um, I went and did that for a while and it was a great grounding for me, you know, a very humble, humble club that, that didn't have a lot of resources, but a lot of people there that worked their absolute socks off. Um, Nicky Milo, uh, God bless him, um, was a good guy and they ran a, ran a very good ship over there. Um, so it was a good grounding for me as a coach. Um, and then fortunately within a year, a year of that, I was coming to the end of actually playing. I finished up at Aldershot and played a few games uh, here and there for the likes of Yeovil and, and teams like that. And then, um, and then just went into coaching. I got a job at, um, at, at um, Fulham as the academy goalkeeping coach and spent a few good years there. And part of my contract there was to take care of the ladies at the time that they were professional, the ladies goalkeepers. And, you know, um, I got my first coaching medals um, whilst I was at uh, doing the Fulham ladies stuff. Um, and it gave me a great insight. And I met um, a couple of good colleagues while doing that that were in the ladies game um, that sort of mentored me through, really. A lad called uh, Keith Bonus, who's, who's a fantastic coach educator and, and a great mentor to me. Um, and then um, within a short space of time, I got offered a job as the first team goalkeeping coach with Stevie Kemba at Crystal Palace. It's a bit of a list, but it's a, it's a lot of time um, to cover. <laughs> so who are, the, who, yeah, are the, who are the goalkeepers at Palace when you go there? Oh, well, I had, um, I had Thomas Myra. Um, he, he was on loan at the time and Lance Cronin. Lance was a sort of up and coming young lad um, and made his debut in a in a, a game at Sellers in a friendly. Um, it was one of the Italian teams. I can't remember where it was Inter or AC Milan, one of those clubs, and did really well. And sort of, you know, there was high expectation about him. But at the first team level, we, we never really, never really had anyone that that was was stable enough. So we brought Thomas Meyer in. The unfortunate thing about that, and Stevie Kemba, you know, with with friends even to this day, is a, is a great lad and has helped me over the years. Also, <clears throat> he um, he was there with Terry Bullivant, and they got the sack shortly after I was there. Um, and Bob Dowie, uh, Bob and Ian Dowie uh, came in, and um, I stayed for a short period of time. But they wanted Mickey Kelly in as the first team goalkeeping coach. Um, so another good friend of mine from within the game, who, who, who's, you know, another great coach of Perry Suckling over at Tottenham said, come and do some stuff for us. Um, it was a little bit of coaching, but it was more on a scouting um, level. And that enabled me between the sort of ages of 13 and probably 18 to go and see most of the goalkeepers within Europe. Um, and, you know, that, after a couple of years of doing that, I then went on to Chelsea, which was really my club, a club I'd supported since I was a kid. And I was very fortunate to have a few good years there. Fantastic club, great setup, all the means and wherewithal to do whatever you wanted from within the goalkeeping department. Um, you know, it was a fantastic time there. But um, unfortunately, um, 
you know, I wanted to move on. I was a bit more ambitious um, and um, I wanted another first team, a crack at first team goalkeeping. Um, that looked like it might come about at Portsmouth, but they didn't come out of administration. So that left me a little bit short. Um, and I ended up in, uh, in back into going into teaching. Um, I took a job at a private school with uh, Dave Swindlehurst, the old um, Crystal Palace centre forward. I've known Dave for years because he's another local boy. Um, and I spent five years um, at Herodian teaching. Then once my children had left uh, that school, I then um, sort of went back into football and I did a little bit of Car Shorten's Academy for a couple of years, um, which brings me to pretty much where I am now um, at Ramsgate Football Club as the assistant manager and coach. I'd, um, I've got the goalkeeping schools that are still set up, not as quite as uh, prominent as they used to be at one point whilst... I was at Fulham and Chelsea. We had 14 goalkeeping centres up and down the country, um, which were great at the time. Great experience. Used to take goalkeepers all over the world. Took 30-odd goalkeepers out to um, Ajax, thanks to Frank Arneson, and 40-odd to Juve. Um, you know, we had some good trips just taking goalkeepers around various different clubs, training, learning the cultures. Um, so some fantastic experiences with that. Um so it's it's been a very varied and um, illustrious sort of <laughs> career, if you like. You know, in between times, I managed Carshall and managed Dulwich Hamlet, managed Walton and Hersham. So it's it, you know, there's lots been going on, but you know, it's at the time when <clears throat> you had to do an awful lot of jobs uh, in order to make ends meet as a as a goalkeeping coach, particularly. Is that one of the difficulties if you're if you're a goalkeeping coach? Say your your situation at Palace. I think I'm right in saying that Ian Dowie's time there ended with. Um, Simon Jordan bursting into his press conference at Charlton with a with a writ in his hand, <laughs> threatening to sue him for breach of contract or something. Yeah, but is it isn't this one of the difficulties when you if you're if you're if you're if you're below first team level if you're a head coach you're kind of dependent on um, the success of the the coaching team above you. Yeah, I would say when you're in the academy roles, I tend to be a little bit safer. Okay. Um, whereas when you go into that first team environment, there, there's a lot of good coaches at various different clubs up and down the country that, that like the academy role because it gives them security. They're good enough to do first team football, even better than a lot of first team goalkeeping coaches. But what happens is you get into that role as an academy coach and it's, it's more secure. So, you know, you've got a job there for as long as you, you know, you're wanted. Whereas with first team football, if you're a member of a first team um, management team, then if they go, you go yeah. basically. So it's very um, precarious at best. And and we used to say there used to be about a four year turnaround on a job, but that's now less. That's probably two years now, um, if you're lucky. Um, whilst the rewards are great, the problem is when Jose gets the sack, they can probably walk away comfortable in the knowledge that they, you know they're not going to struggle financially. No. Whereas as the goalkeeping coach, you're on a wage and, and you know, it kind of is what it is financially. You, you come away from it needing another job straight away. Um, so that's kind of, um, that's the pitfalls of, of academy football. Money isn't fantastic. The rewards, you know, they're various, depends what you look for in the game. You know, I just love the game, as I said to you before. So my, my football was my drug. You know, I'm not a great socialite. I'm not one for, for the drinks culture within the game. You know, I love the modern coaching methods of today. 
Um, I also think the game of yesteryear had a lot to offer and has a lot to offer in the modern game also. I think we're going in circles a little bit. You know, we talk about formations and shapes and so on and so forth. The, the game has changed, yeah, maybe a little bit quicker and there are there are athletes in the game. But when I look back at some of the match of the days from 20 years ago, the tempo in the game isn't that greater. The pitches, the surfaces you play on, the training facilities are absolutely fantastic these days. So whilst the game has changed, I think, and the job's changed a lot, you know, you have to be more school teacher mentality as a coach to survive in the modern game because there's a lot more preparation. There's a lot more as an academy goalkeeping coach where you're putting stuff onto computer systems so that if you ever left the club, someone's got access to what work you've been doing and the development phases that you've been building to. So, you know, there's a lot that goes on that I, you know, I do love about the, the modern game. But it takes away a little bit, I feel, from from what goes on on the pitch. Let's talk specifically about goalkeeping, because <clears throat> that's how you and I know each other. What's um, yes. what's the hardest thing about coaching a young goalkeeper? If you're working in an academy and you've got a, a new batch of, of trainees, What's the what's the hardest thing to um to get across to them? Is it the technique or is it is it just the well? I, I, techniques is just repetition, and and if you're doing it right and you're stimulating the kids, then then you'll get good technicians out of the game. You know, I call myself a textbook coach. There are a lot of coaches in the game that are they're very different in the methodology and so on, but I'm kind of textbook. You know, you've got to keep up with what's going on within the game and and the the techniques that are developing. But, you know, someone quite wise once said to me, we're not here to entertain the keepers. You know, we're here to, to teach them and develop them. And at the time, I kind of didn't really get that. And um, But now I kind of see more about what that entails. And, and with the young keepers, it is about repetition. It's about teaching them good technique. If a goalkeeper's got good technique, then then the failings further down the line are less and less. The mistakes are less and less. Um, but... You know, the, the, the teachings within the game have become less about how technical you are as a goalkeeping coach, as a goalkeeper, but more about how effective you are in goals. What and, do you mean, a lot what do you mean people, by effective, Les? Well, there's a lot of goalkeepers now that are happy to parry, push shots away, um, block an awful lot. Whereas back in the day, that wouldn't have been acceptable. You know, coming for crosses and punching was a rarity. Now it's an accepted part of the game. Now, I do understand that the pace on the ball may be different. But the athleticism of the keeper is supposed to be such that it's in tune with that. So if we're more athletic, we adjust to the pace of the ball a little bit more nowadays. And we should be able to to handle that. But I think if you're a poor technician, i.e. you make saves going backwards, you know, I, I kind of feel, you know, one of the most poignant things at the moment is the David De Gea discussion. Um, you know, he came into this game and found it very hard, the physicality. He was always a line keeper. He wasn't one that comes for for his crosses particularly, but he was a fantastic line keeper and a fantastic shot stopper. He had his technical frailties, which have always been there, but he's got away with them because he keeps them in games. He makes fantastic saves. If you were to analyse the technique that causes him to make lots of saves with his feet, um, he's on his heels an awful lot. So he's a very upright keeper. And, and the balance, without getting into it too deeply, kind of makes him make a lot of saves with his feet. Now, when you're working with, you know, goalkeepers of different statures, different sizes, um, different uh, athletic abilities, then obviously you have to adapt to each goalkeeper. And that's the hardest thing for me. And, and you know, you see a lot of goalkeeping coaches come out of the pro game as players 
and go straight into coaching senior keepers. And they don't really learn the phases of development that goalkeepers go through to get there. They obviously know to a certain extent because they've been there themselves. But until you've coached an eight-year-old, ten-year-old goalkeeper, you don't know what it's what it what is required at professional level to get them to an under twelves, under fourteens, under sixteens team. And I've kind of felt for me that's always been an advantage working with young goalkeepers. What you do see when you work with young goalkeepers is quicker progression. Right. You see the fruits of what you do a lot quicker than when you're working with senior keepers. You know, when you're working with first team keepers, it's a very different environment. Is that in the sense that like the, the older goalkeeper, the adult goalkeeper, his traits are and his habits and his techniques, they're unbreakable. Is that, you know, the, is that something you just can't correct that late in a career? Yeah, they tend to be ingrained and you have to be careful what you do. So if a goalkeeper makes a, a mistake in the senior level, you know, you're still right to point out why that error maybe happened. If if a goalkeeper spilled a ball for, in a particular save or in a particular instance, you you know, if positioning wasn't right or whatever, you you know, you you would identify that with them. That's part of your job. You can't shy away from that just because they have a different technical um, trait to their game that other keepers might 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 not have. So. But, but what you tend to find is as they get older, 14, 15, 16, the influence you can have on changing that that technique is, is limited. Um, you know, I think Arsene Wenger once once put it really well, not particularly with goalkeepers, but he was speaking about phases of development for young players and the opportunity to change and improve technique as they got older and older. And he talked in some detail about percentage of improvement and how much harder it was. And it's the same with goalkeepers particularly. And you have to accommodate certain techniques that goalkeepers would have because of their physical differences. You know, some being quicker than others, some yeah. being smaller than others. You know, you, you know, you've seen. But it's interesting to see when I say the game goes around in full circles a little bit. We're quite happy to to come back to the smaller goalkeeper now. When I say smaller, between six foot and six foot two, because we're now asking the goalkeeper to do a different set of, of skills. So yeah. their distribution is so important in the modern game. We don't really want the beanpole goalkeeper anymore, the six foot seven guy. We want the kind of like it's, it's, I know I know he's having a he's going through a poor stretch of form, but the kind of the mm. the Kepa model, um, yeah, almost the kind of the well, Fabian Barthez sort of prototype that existed well fifteen years ago yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's somewhere in between that at the moment um, because when um, when I first got to Chelsea, I was asked to write out a list of goalkeepers that I felt would have a presence in the English game, and I was asked to write out a list of the best English goalkeepers. Okay. So I, I went about that over a three or four month period and, and gave Christoph, who was the first team goalkeeping coach at Chelsea at the time, um, gave him a list of what what I would recommend and what I felt would be would be right for the club. Um, and, you know, my, my minimum criteria was they've got to be six foot three and above or potentially six foot three and above. That's interesting. Whereas there isn't that, you know, there isn't that criteria now. You know, we were doing bone, you know, we were doing bone testing and all sorts to see what the potential size of some of the keepers were. But because we're going, you know, the way that the top clubs play, particularly the Man Cities, it's not all about getting down the outsides of teams anymore and putting lots of crosses in the box. It's about going through the middle of teams. So the ad, the agility of the goalkeeper becomes more important. The bravery of the keeper, the starting positions, the speed have become more prevalent in the game. You know, you've still got to be able to come and take crosses because when you play against some of the sides that put the ball in the box, you've got to be able to deal with the physicality of some of today's players 
you know, the, the increased athletic ability of some of the boys to be able to jump. And you've got to be able to compete with that and, and still be strong in the air. But I think the emphasis now is mainly on that distribution element. You know, a, a lot of the clubs, you know, I, I, it's also a fallacy, Seb, that you, you are told, you know, we, we listen to the media, oh, you know, they don't play that way. We don't teach the game. Players should be taught more to play football. All academies now teach their kids to play football the right way. Yeah. I don't know of any academy that I've ever come across or been in and, and seen poor teaching. They're all teaching kids that ball familiarity is the best way to go as far as their development's concerned. And I've never known so much now where the goalkeepers are having to learn not only their own skill set, which is a, it's almost like a sport in its own, Seb. Learning that skill set as a goalkeeper, there's so many different things to learn but also being able to learn and be as efficient in the professional game as some of your outfield players, you know, in goal, being able to deal with the back pass, being able to pull the ball down and play in two and three touches. You know, it's an art in itself. And you see by some of the mistakes that are creeping into some very, very good goalkeepers, you know, Schmeichels and, and you know, still making mistakes with the distribution. But the problem is we see the Man City keeper coming in. We see the Liverpool keeper coming in and doing fantastic things with their feet. And we think that everybody should be like that. You know, that's that's just not the way. Do you, you know what's really, what, what, what strikes me, Les, is that for a, for a generation of goalkeepers, this change kind of happened mid-career. So you got you got a player like, okay, so um, Edison at Man City, like his skill set naturally involves being able to ping a 70-yard pass to the feet of Sergio Aguero. For someone like Casper yeah. Schmeichel, um, he probably grew up more, I know he doesn't really like the comparison, but he probably grew up more in his dad's mould. Whereas you go in goal and all the emphasis is taken away from what you're able to do with your feet. You still punt the ball and you still throw it and you can still clear it. But you almost have to, you almost have to retrain yourself and all your instincts. You almost have to become a footballer in the middle of your professional career. Is that something you, you encountered with the guys you coached? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's the hard thing about it. I mean, you know, we used to look back um, you know, when I watch some of the goalkeepers that I've been fortunate to work with, when you look back at Fulham, we had Van der Sar, Mike Taylor, um, and a lad called Martin Herrera, who we got him from Argentina. Very good goalkeepers. Um, you know, Van der Sar, no one would ever question whether he was any good with his feet. No, brilliant with but his feet. Then, then you started to get a move. I mean, he was, he, you know, he could ping a ball, seriously yeah. ping a ball. But these guys are, are a different a different stage again with that. Casper Schmeichel, fortunate enough to 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 have had him on trial at Fulham when uh, when I was there, and he's he's a chip off the old block. By the way, you know there are there are techniques we talk about technique. There are techniques that he has and had that are very similar to his dad. That style, but you wouldn't save. teach them. That, that, oh yeah. God! And, and yeah. you, you know, if you ever seen him claw a ball in where he dives sort of head first at someone's feet and he claws it back in with one hand, you know, that's something that um, that that you see Peter do, you know, on numerous occasions. You know, so watching him and watching him with his feet now, he could he could ping a ball great distances, but the pressure that you put under now, you have to be able to do it a lot quicker. And you have to be brave enough to be able to to sort of play to people. You know, it was it was a philosophy at Fulham that we had, and we used to question it as a goalkeeper, as a goalkeeping coach back then. I used to say, let the goalkeepers make their own decisions. But the problem is, if you if you let a goalkeeper make his own decision at a young age, 16, 15, 14, they'll tend to go long because they want the safety. They don't yeah. want the jeopardy of of being the one that makes the mistake that costs their team the game. 
You know, and even at that level, whilst we say to them, there's no pressure on it, there's no pressure on results, they feel the pressure. They make mistakes, they, they feel it. You feel it as a goalkeeper. So it is the jeopardy of being able to play. Yeah, we do see the pictures from where we stood in front of us. But you know what? Um, some of the, you know, the Edisons of this world and Allisons, you know, they're a different standard again of, of what we ask um, from a distribution of the keeper. And it's and that such a big deal is made of it. You know, I look at the likes of, and you talk about transition in mid-career. You know, I look at Ben Foster, and although they've got relegated this year, he's been fantastic yes. for me, Ben. Yes, he he's has. played some of his best football of his career this year. You know, and England has got this horrible habit of kicking goalkeepers into touch when they're at their best. You know, Scott Carson's, um, um, Rob Green's, you know, Richard Wright's. We've absolutely murdered some very good goalkeepers in this country because we've been very quick to damn them over singular mistakes, very high-profile mistakes. And they're, they're all goalkeepers that have gone through this transition of the way that the game has been played now. Now, you have to bear in mind that also not every team plays that way. There are horses for courses within the game. There are certain goalkeepers that, that, that wouldn't sign for certain clubs. But when you look at them, are technically very good. You know, Ben Foster, technically a very good goalkeeper, moves his feet really well, is very calm, gets in good positions. Still makes the good save, still makes the athletic save, but, you know, has matured into something, you know, quite special. And, and sometimes there have been other goalkeepers that haven't been, been given that opportunity. You know, Joe Hart at the moment hasn't become a bad goalkeeper. He hasn't gone from England to, to nothing. You know, there's obviously reasons for that. Now, whether some of those reasons are psychological, whether the confidence has taken such a hit, who knows? Until you speak to the guy, you wouldn't really know. Let's let's talk about that because this is the area that fascinates me, and, and I feel that it doesn't really um, doesn't really get covered. What do you um, even even I can remember I'm, I'm I turned thirty six a couple of weeks ago, and I can remember clear as day goalkeeping mistakes I made at school. So when I was sixteen, seventeen, um, it's like they happened yesterday, and and that's just at school level with like four and a half people and a dog watching. What's it like <laughs> to make a, a mistake when your career? is dependent on performance when, when it's when when you know that you're being analyzed in a professional environment and your career's progression depends on how you play what's that like well I, i'll tell you a couple of funny ones first seb and, and when i the first game i ever played for Southampton was a testimonial um, for george horsfall uh, who was our youth team coach at the time and we played against rangers and it was the first real game proper game with a big crowd that my parents had ever come to watch me play and i think i was 16 maybe stroke 17, still 16 at the time. And I was thrown in at the deep end. I wasn't supposed to play, but I ended up thrown in at the deep end. And we had a few thousand there, good crowd. And I come for a cross in the first five minutes of the game, dropped it behind me and conceded a goal. Yeah. Now, fortunately, I was either too thick-skinned or didn't really realise what was going on in, 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 you know, in my world of, of football at the time. Because there wasn't talk of the psychological game. You know, there's very little coaching that went on either for, for goalkeepers back in those days. So the next thing I did was, you know, I was told to be positive. The next cross I came for, I came again. The next cross I came for, I punched. You know, so, and then I made a decent save after that. So you recover back into the game without thinking about it too much. It's when you start to think about it, that all your, your natural processes all slow down. And then you start to second guess yourself. Now, if, if you are particularly fragile mentally, you just won't go on. And, and the goalkeeping position 
is an awful lot about the psychology of it and, and the, the mental strength of what you do. Most goalkeepers that ever make their debut at professional level are good goalkeepers. You don't, you know, I, I can't stand the sweeping statements, oh, he's rubbish, he's not very good. You know, if you've played professional football or you play a professional game, you're good at what you do. You're very good at what you do. Some are better than others. Some handle situations better than others. And I think what distinguishes the best from a lot of the others is is the psychological strength that you have the ability to recover from mistakes the ability to 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 come for that cross that other people would might shy away from and and you know for me when you've got a crowd of people stood behind you and you've just made a mistake um and they're calling you all the names under the sun. And that was the situation for me. I mean, my, my mum actually turned around to my dad and said, what the hell are they saying about my boy? <laughs> you know, and you can imagine what some of the Rangers players were saying, the Rangers supporters were saying at the time. What were they saying about my boy was the shout afterward. But you need to be strong. You know, I remember playing a Crystal Palace reserve game against Millwall. And I stood most of the game on the edge of the 18-yard box because I was scared stiff to go into the six-yard box for fear of what was being thrown at me. You know, it's bizarre. And I mean, obviously, times have changed and moved on a little bit. But you need to be you need to be strong. You need to be resilient. The mental side of goalkeeping is very much underrated. It really is and, and underestimated as far as the effects it has on the goalkeeper. Um, and you don't get a lot of chance now, Seb. You know, back in the day, a manager would stick with their goalkeepers. But because now we've got bigger squads, you've got the ability to have um, you know, a number two that isn't far off being the number one. So, you know, you, you can chop and change. You can give the goalkeepers a break. But, you know, it's still not a good place to be as a goalkeeper when you've been left out. It still hurts. Um, and it's still hard to recover from. Hi there, I'm David Ornstein and I've launched a brand new show on YouTube, Ask Ornstein, where I answer questions from our athletic subscribers. To get your question answered, simply leave a comment at the bottom of my column every Monday and I'll choose my favourites. To watch the show, head over to the TIFO Podcast YouTube channel and a new episode will be up every Tuesday afternoon. So about a year ago, I was um, I covered the, the League One playoff final at Wembley. Um, and I can't remember the goalkeeper's name, but the, the Charlton keeper um, let in a, a back... Do you know the goal I mean? The back pass he let in in the first half. It's uh, ball comes back in the kind of shallow right position, centre-half, passes it back to the goalkeeper. Uh, he miscontrols it and it just goes into the net. Is it Wembley? Yeah, yeah. It's in a playoff final. And I remember thinking... I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm supposed to be writing an, an on, the, on the Whistle article. And I remember thinking, how does that not ruin your life? And I mean literally, because I, in, in a sort of YouTube age... Um, regardless of what happens from that point on, I tried to put myself in, the, in that goalkeeper's position. I remember thinking, that is going to be, that's going to have like 500,000 hits on YouTube by the time you get home tonight. If you were in that position, okay, I'll tell you what, actually, this would be more interesting. You mentioned Rob Green earlier. So yeah. let's say you're his goalkeeping coach in 2010, comes in at halftime at Rustenburg, he's let in that Clint, Clint Dempsey goal. What do you yeah. say to him in that situation when quite the whole world is watching and and yeah he must have been i i can't even I, I can't relate to how he must have felt in those moments i think i think there's so many aspects to it you do feel like you've let everybody down that's that's your first and immediate emotion that you feel that you've let everybody down how do you recover from it well the goalkeeping coach's job is pretty much to identify what technically was wrong with the save 
more often than not, the goalkeeper doesn't need telling that. He will know what he's done, what he's done wrong, but but he will also know how to correct it. Someone of Rob Green's experience, for instance, you know that 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 goal for England that he conceded, um, the knee's gone down early. He's grounded the knee. The ball's the, 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 his trunk has twisted. The ball's come off his dominant hand and gone in. Now, if I'd have said to him, look, you know, you've got to get your your closest foot to the line of the ball and get right behind it. Da, da, da. I, I wouldn't have needed to say that to someone like him because he would know what the mistake was and how to correct it. Now, once you've addressed the technical aspect, it's whether you're strong enough then to say, well, OK, that won't happen again. And that's really what you have to do. And it was very interesting watching some of the psychological signs that goalkeepers have. You know, if you watch Joe Hart, whenever a goal went in or whenever there's a mistake, even to a certain extent to save, he'd go to his drinks bottle. Yeah. Other goalkeepers have been taught to just brush their hands off like David James, brush your hands off like it's gone, finished, like you're dusting dusting the situation away. So there are different psychological triggers now that sports psychologists have got involved that help players, goalkeepers through these different situations. But it's all about the individual resilience that you have, Seb, in that you will all handle situations differently. The problem we've got now is that Remember the one that Tim Flowers, where the, the divot in the pitch oh, the ball over his shoulder and pitch? Yeah, yeah the Collymore goal. That, from, got, yeah. that got so much coverage that it was unprecedented. Yeah, you know, and, and, it, and whilst it was the pitch, it wasn't really him. Nowadays, that would get so much more coverage. The, the media, social media is all over every situation. That's the thing I would probably find hardest to, to, to come to terms with, that everybody... Whilst the Tim Flowers situation, everybody probably had an opinion, they couldn't actually voice it publicly. No. Now, it's very hard to say to, you know, it's very hard. You know, if I was playing today, I wouldn't have a Twitter account. No, no, no. Because I would get myself into such a pickle that I really want, want to be subjected to the abuse. And whilst we're all pretty thick-skinned, some of it does hurt and it hurts our families, etc., so that's the repercussions that even the simplest mistake was it Enkelman the um, Birmingham the throw in uh, goal played Aston Villa yeah, it was Aston yeah Villa. That's oh it. my goodness that's killed the lad's career it, it's absolutely and I as a coach I can't understand that I can only think that that the lad himself has withdrawn himself from certain situations because you know you can't I can't see a manager of a first team saying look. You know, that's going to end your career doing that. One mistake, two mistakes, three mistakes, five mistakes, don't make you a bad goalkeeper. You hit on a theme which interested me earlier um, about the kind of we, in this country, we throw away goalkeepers after a high-profile mistake. And almost, um, you mentioned Scott Carson. He's another one who I thought, okay, after what happened to him against Croatia, it's almost as if um, after that night, which... Yeah, it's full of full of mitigating circumstances. A terrible night at Wembley, bad pitch, chewed up by yeah. American football. Yeah. He was probably nervous yeah. as hell making his international debut. But it was almost as if yeah. um, he became a different, he, not different player, but he was almost perceived differently as a result afterwards. What would happen to him in that situation when he sort of he becomes entwined with this moment that he can't take back this this terrible thing which had huge consequences obviously for for Euro 2008 and England not qualifying you know the funny thing about it so we've all been there we I mean not to that level obviously and I would love to have been there at that level even to have been been in the position to make those mistakes don't get me wrong 
But even when you look back even further over the years, look at the Peter Shilton one where the ball goes under his body. Yeah. Um, Peter was very self-effacing. He would, he would look at himself, but such a confident character. Now, what he didn't have was the weight of social media behind that. You know, everybody and his brother's seen it because it's out there. It's a clip that's on YouTube and people can access it now. But it wasn't all over Twitter. It wasn't people voicing their opinions. So in that one moment, singularly, you're thinking, you know, you kind of want the world to swallow you up. But you also have something to say, you know, and I used to, I can only draw on my own experiences and the experience of talking to other goalkeepers, talking to Van der Sar, talking to Petr Cech. How do you get over those mistakes? They said, you just dust it down. And and Peter Shilton said that, that you know, without, you know, wishing to, to keep dropping these names, but but they've come up with some very good um, anecdotes and, and things to help you over the years. Peter Shilton said once that the next save you make might be the save that keeps you in the game or wins you the game. And he was talking about a reference to a game he played. We played Liverpool um, and, and I went up to the game there and he, he had an absolute blind, but they got beat. And I said, what do you do when you're like, you know, when you've conceded three goals? And I was a young apprentice then and, and you've got that crowd and, and it was Anfield and everything's, you know, against you. He said, that next save you make, Les, is just might be the most important thing. And I think that's where you get to as a goalkeeper. And you almost want to make a save after a mistake. You know, it's a cliche, I know, but almost after a mistake, you want to make that save or come and take that cross that reestablishes yourself in the game. It's what we teach when we teach young players when we're playing football. If you make two or three mistakes or you give the ball away, the next thing you do, you do it well. Whether it's a basic tackle, a header or a pass, you try to do that well. And that's how you recover. And and you recover from these mistakes one stage at a time. Now, if it's a bad mistake that's cost you a tournament, a place in a final, all you can do is go back to the training ground and work on the aspects. You might be a goalkeeper that might not want to go back to the training ground and revisit the technique that fouled you. You might not want to do that. You might just want to say, that's just a one-off. Now I'm going to continue with my normal training program and get on with it. Some goalkeepers might want to say, well, I want to do 100 of those particular saves to get that out of my system. But the reality of it is, you're only going to know in the next game when you deal with a similar situation, whether you are over that, whether you can cope with the crowd attention, the media attention, because that's all... That that's what these situations about, and that's where you will draw your your confidence from is putting in a good solid performance. A mistake um, after making a mistake, you put in a performance that that has no mistakes in it. You put in a solid performance, as it were, and and you slowly build your way back into a situation where your confidence grows again. But the the confidence of a goalkeeper is quite a fragile thing. But you will find that most goalkeepers that you speak to, whilst we all used to be strong characters, we're not anymore. The, the game is different. And we're very different characters to what we used to be as goalkeepers. You know, I know goalkeepers that have been around the training ground. They're very quiet. They're very unassuming. They're very focused individuals. And and I kind of love that about that. When you watch, you know, Petr Cech, you know, I was fortunate enough, he'd come and sit and have dinner with you. He'd talk. He'd been to the goalkeeping schools that we used to run at Charterhouse and he'd come and, and sit and talk goalkeeping with you. And he just loved the game and all those little things that go in to make his character will come to fruition during the course of the season in their game situations, how they deal with situations, how calm they are, how they deal with mistakes, how they brush off mistakes. 
and it depends on how pro high profile the mistakes are. But how you recover from those depends on how big a character you are, not necessarily on the outside, but but generally on the inside. You know, it's really interesting you bring up Petr Cech because how many times during his career did someone say he's finished? Like he'd make, he'd go through a couple of bad weeks, he'd have a few bad moments. And I think, you know, so people were writing off when he was sort of 28, 29. Um, it's the most amazing thing to see to see how um, how resilient he was. Is he, um, as a character, was he the most impressive that you were around? Or was it Shelton? Schiltz was would just have. I mean, Schiltz wasn't nowhere near as big a person physically as any of those. He was in great shape at, at the age of forty. Yeah. Fantastic athlete. He was an obsessed. Well, most of the goalkeepers I've known have have an obsession. You know, he he is obsessed. Peter Schilt and was obsessed with his craft. And he was the best ball handler I have ever met, bar none. A best ball. You know, he, he was bar none. He was the best technician. I've ever come across. You mean like sort of uh, taking crosses and, and that kind of thing, literally handling? Just shot stopping, yeah. his handling of the ball. You know, okay. he would parry very little. Then then you had the likes of Van der Sars, who, who's, whose presence, whose all-round game were just... But their characters off the pitch, they were, they were great around the dressing room, good characters, calm on the pitch, uh, good communicators, good understanding of the game. And it shows you the roles that, that certainly Van der Sar has now as to, to the sort of person that he is. Um, then you've got um, Petr Cech was another one that was very self-assured. Now, when he got his head injury, can you imagine then having to play every game for the rest of your career with some sort of uh, foreign object on your head that he's just, you know, he's just so out of context of everything we do as as goalkeepers you know to have to wear that helmet that's sensory limiting for the rest of your career and then have the worry that maybe you'll get another another and there was a lot spoken about oh do you think he's the same goalkeeper since that you know he, he wasn't the same he was better he was better and, and I've had the good fortune to see him work at close hand and watch uh, Christoph and the other coaches work with him you know he's a he's an impressive character not impressive as in loud. He's very unassuming, um, but on the pitch, he's very self-assured. He knows what he's he's about, and that's what you find with all those top characters and top goalkeepers. They know what their strengths are. They also know what their weaknesses are, but they work doubly hard on those weaknesses, and that's kind of what makes them the people that they are. But, you know, around the place, Petr Cech would talk goalkeeping all day long, and, you know, for some people, that might be a, a bore, but you know, for for those of us that are that are really into the game and really into our art, he is um, you know such an impressive character. As as the likes of Van der Sar, you know, even the likes you know when I worked at, at Fulham with Mike Taylor's, and then obviously being able to see firsthand while I was at Tottenham with Paul Robinson and people like that, you know, been very very fortunate to see some of these people work and to see them off the pitch. Can I ask about um, Paul Robinson? Because I'm, I'm a Spurs fan, um, and this is always yeah. Um, this has always puzzled me. Why was he so susceptible to to long shots? If there was a reason at all. Uh, uh, well, here's here's my here's my thought behind it. For, for all it's worth, I um, after a few games, Perry, we were talking Perry Suckling and myself because yeah. Perry was the academy goalkeeping coach there, and he's back there now working and and and, and a very good and astute uh, coach, Perry, and, and a good person too. He he sent me the video clips of um, 
of some of the goals that he'd conceded from distance. And I had a theory because when I watched the clips back of the goals that he was conceded from distance, what he used to do was soon as soon as the area or the box were cleared, his arms would drop and he'd become a little bit complacent on his first three or four steps when he used to move up the pitch and then sort of used to get caught on the hop a little bit. And I think that's pretty much all it was. There were three or four goals that went past him that almost where he didn't switch on and the ball was put back past him before he'd had a chance to get himself composed and set again. I don't think there was any limitation with his game. I think it was more a psychological aspect of his game where he used to, the ball would get cleared from the box and he'd switch off a little bit. So, uh, you know, I think that is focused to the second phase of play more than anything else for me. Because when you watch him in training, he's got foot speed. Um, you know, he had speed around the around the goals. Had strong wrists, Paul Anderson. Really, yeah. Really oh, listen, wrist. he was for me again. He was another good goalkeeper that didn't, um, you know, that 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 was sort of unceremoniously sort of um, chopped down. Really, um, later later on in his career, when he should have been having a slightly better time than he did. Um, you know, I, I kind of look at some of the training and and training methods of the the goalkeepers that they had. Paul Robinson would dictate what he did in training and how he went about it. And I think that's been a difference with with sort of Chelsea, certainly, um, that I noticed that, that Christoph very much dictated what Petacek and, and Carlo did. You know, bearing in mind that Carlo was the, the new generation of top goalkeeper when he first came to Chelsea. Yes. And then all of a sudden, when he lost his spot to, to Petacek, it was up to another notch. Um, so all the time these goalkeepers have been sort of moving forward, um, techniques have been changing, the appreciation of what we required in the game was was changing. And that was at the stage when we'd gone from saying, oh, well, there won't be no more Carlo Cudicini's about. Now all of a sudden there are, we're going back to more the athletic goalkeeper that can play a little bit. I remember when when Czech first turned up and he took Cudicini's spot, um, one of the kind of the, um, the lines of commentary around him was, oh, isn't he good with his feet? Now, if you if you fast forward a decade and a half, people are laughing at him because he can't adjust to Unai Emery's football at Arsenal. Do you remember that? It, it's just it's 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 strange the way that the game evolves like that, and it kind of it forgets what people were. Yeah, there's lots of adaptation also on on the technical um, requirements of a goalkeeper. You know, I think the way that that some teams play when they set out to press you hard, some teams don't press. You know, nowadays when teams press you, they press you as a unit or they don't press at all which makes it very hard for the goalkeeper to, to actually play out. Once upon a time, it used to be one one player pressing the ball. And if you could get out of that first press as a goalkeeper and get around that first press, you'd have three or four options to play. But now with team organisation, team tactics, the way that they press, that's also changed. And I think that that's affected and would affect, you know, you've also got to remember that as we get a little bit older, as, as older statesmen, that we do slow down a little bit. I could have done and, without that. And unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've only been well, 36 for that, a week. Yeah. I'm not ready for you to say things uh, like that to me. <laughs> oh, listen, it, listen it's, a, it's a sharp decline from there, mate. Don't, don't worry. 36, you're, you're still a spring chicken now. Oh, dear. Yeah, so, dear. so, you know, coming back to it, you know, you've got to remember that the, 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 the Petr Czechs and that, you know, in the days that they're criticised for not being as good with their feet, you know, they're getting a little bit older, so that's not necessarily the strength in their game. That doesn't make them less of a goalkeeper. You know, you look at the likes of the Buffon that's still going and, you know, Petr Cech still and, and was keeping himself in great nick. Um, 
I just think we're very quick to to throw out that that experience and that knowledge and that quality. You know, we are so susceptible also to opinion from social media, opinion from media. You know, we're very quick to jump on it nowadays. The problem is, I think, you know, we can we can all look at the weekend's football. I can watch any game from around the world and we can sit there and watch it and watch it and watch it and watch it and we can overanalyse what every player does. And the problem is, if you're going to do that, you're you're going to see fault in everybody. You'll see fault in the best of them. And and I think we've got to the stage now where we've got to be careful where we can watch so much of it and we can analyse and we can criticise so much that we almost forget what some of the better points of, of these, you know, they're legends, the, you know, these people that have been in the game for that period of time. You know, when you think Petr Cech didn't start playing in goal till, what, 16, 17, and when I say start playing in goal, seriously, till they were 16, 17, you know, the, the, there's all this said about um, the younger ages, but some goalkeepers are just born to do it. You know, so we, we can talk about how much development, how much coaching, but some people are born with the physical attributes and you can't produce those, you know, and this is why we find it so tough at the top levels. You know, have Man City produced their own goalkeeper? No. Have Manchester United, have Chelsea, have Tottenham? Are they producing? No. It's the one position that we can go out and spend silly money on, particularly in the modern game. We don't need to produce our own. So the emphasis isn't on producing your own homegrown goalkeepers. And and when you look at all the top clubs, we're buying them from abroad. We're, you know, with the influx of foreign coaches, they have more knowledge over the goalkeepers that, that they have worked with in previous clubs. And, and you know, we, we, we can go out and spend ridiculous money at the top level um, and bring them in there. So we, the emphasis isn't on producing them themselves. The raw material is harder and harder to come by. And in today's game as well, there are fewer and fewer people wanting to play in goal because they see the television, they see the media coverage, they see the Twitter. Do I want to put myself through that? Do I want my son as an 11, 12-year-old to be subjected to that if he gets to that level? Not so sure. That's a really good point, actually. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd rather see my son play up front, play in midfield, you know, enjoy himself, get less. You know, you, know we, we, you really are in a position of jeopardy and you have to be such a strong, strong character to play the modern game with all the scrutiny that's on you. I'm talking about at the top level predominantly. But, you know, we've still got good goalkeepers in Division 2 in, in, in the Conference and the Conference South. There are good goalkeepers up and down the country. And it, and it's an art form that, that we mustn't forget because, you know, and I say it time and time again, we talk about the being able to play with your feet and so on and so forth. But teams will get relegated and promoted each season by one point, by goal difference. And having a goalkeeper that keeps the ball out the back of the goal is the difference between you getting a relegation, a promotion, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's that finite. Les, it's been absolutely fascinating. I'll get shouted at if we go on for any longer. Um, thank you so no, much for cool. coming on, Matey. This has been great. And um, we'd love to have you back at some point as well. Oh, I love that. That'd be fantastic. 